Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. If there was ever a tried and true recipe, consider that Seth Greenberg and his father have been baking for over a combined 80 years. For this Valentine's episode, Seth and his girlfriend Karina come on to share a nostalgic cookie dough used for jam thumbprints, Valentine's heart cookies, as well as chocolate dipped cookies. They also teach us lessons from Seth's dad, who set up shop in New York City after World War II. For 50 years, he provided residents with baked goods for their most cherished events. What an honor to have Seth and Karina on today. Can you both just introduce yourselves and let me know a little bit about your relationship and also what you each do for the bakery? I'm Seth Greenberg, and uh-huh. my dad is William Greenberg Jr., okay. who operated one of New York's best pastry shops for 49 years wow. and built his name and his business into one of New York's truly iconic pastry shops. And I grew up literally in the store. I then worked with him for 25 years and we sold the business and left. I wound up back in retail baking. I opened my store September 27th of uh, 2019, uh, having had a uh, epiphany like, who was I kidding? This is what I, I do. Wow. I'm back to where he started in 1946. Wow. Um, although I have the advantage of his name and experience and reputation to draw on. And and every day, I would say a third of my customers come in with their own story of, oh, I remember getting fill in the blank. Sometimes Mm. come in and and hang out. And mostly he's there to supervise and make sure Seth isn't ruining anything. (laughs) (laughs) At, At 94, he is very sharp. And uh, I think they probably talk more about baking now than ever before. He loves to come and hang out in the bakery. People come in and cry. Yeah, he was really, he was, it was an iconic bakery. New Yorkers will really remember him. That's, that's amazing. And then, so Karina, how did you and Seth meet and when did you join into the family business? I own a business. I operate farmer's markets here in the house. Oh, that explains your email signature. And then that's what I was searching for on Instagram. And okay, got it. So uh, Seth appeared one day and said, hi, I make cookies. Can I come to the market? And I think immediately I said, well, I have too many bakers. I'm sorry, I can't fit you in. And I, I could tell that there was, if I may, sweetheart, um, there was a, don't you know who I am? <laughs> And and then other people told me who he was and they said, no, no, really, you want to let him in. And then he came by a few days later with samples. And I mean, you think you know what a chocolate chip cookie tastes like. I'm telling you, Becky, I have never had a chocolate chip cookie like that. Mm. And um, there's something about whatever they're doing, working those recipes tirelessly, and you can, can really taste the difference with his bake. Mm. Well, I have to tell you, you know, you sent me a box and last night I told my five-year-old that he could have some brownie. And so he took a bite of the brownie and he goes, oh, this isn't a brownie. And I was oh. like, yeah, it is. And he goes, no, this is just chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> It's as 
close as a brownie can get to being fudge while still being a brownie. <laughs> I, I'm not a, a big believer in light and fluffiness. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so now that we've got a little bit of the present, which I love, I want to go way back to the beginning, Seth, and just talk about you as a kid in a bakery. You know, it's such a wonderful experience for anyone to walk into a bakery. It's warm and it's nostalgic and it smells sweet and it's a feeling of luxury. And that's what we have all experienced as consumers. I want to know what it was like when you would walk into the bakery. What was that like for you? I'm still in the business some 50 years later. Mm-hmm. And it's the same reaction today as it is then. I, I mean, it's just wonderful. We lived on the west side of New York, and my elementary school was on the east side. And then after school, I'd walk over to Madison Avenue and take the uptown bus to 86th Street and the crosstown bus home. Mm-hmm. And my dad's store at 1181 Madison was 10 steps out of my way to go visit the store where my mm-hmm. dad was. So, mm-hmm. of course, I did. I mean, I certainly enjoyed what he made. So I would pop in and... At that point, we had a a wonderful baker named George Ostman, Mm -hmm. and he was the, we had two shifts, the day shift working roughly uh, 4 a.m. to noon, and the night shift roughly 4 p.m. to midnight. Okay. And usually the first thing that George would be making were brownies. Mm. I would come in, and here's the store redolent of this deep chocolate, buttery Mm. Mel, and I'm just thinking, yeah, that's me. Come on, let's go. <laughs> and, and we had this wonderful collection of sales ladies, best described as 75-year-old Jewish grandmothers. And, and they were just wonderful, wonderful people. Half the experience of the store is the product, and the mm. other half is the people. No matter how good a product we make, if the customers don't enjoy the experience, they're not going to shop with us. Mm. And how the store smells, baking on premises, you're 60% of the way there. You just oh. create the atmosphere, you know. Oh, right, right yeah. Mm-hmm. So I go, and there would be my dad, who at that point was still 6'4 and, and mm-hmm. reasonably thin, and he would be standing in his one spot at the end of the cookie counter uh, doing the special decorations on cakes that he, at that point, had really built a name for himself. Mm-hmm. And it was right by an old-fashioned radiator with a radiator cover where everybody would sit, both to watch him and in the winter where it was warm. <laughs> the best seat could, in the house. It was. Absolutely was the best seat in the house. And the really little kids would stand on this so they could get up to eye level and watch. <laughs> and every kid got a cookie, regardless. Oh. And, and, you know, that's kids up to the age of, say, 80. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> every kid at heart. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and I think we made... Oh, I think maybe 10, 11 kinds of cookies at that point. Wow. And, you know, he would just be handing out cookies left and right to pretty much everybody who wandered over to that side of the store. But so I, I watched my dad for a little bit. And, uh, and then I'd wander into the back uh, where George was. And I would, and I'm going to put this word in quotes, help him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But the, the first thing that I ever helped make him were brownies. And I, I think if I put my mind to it, it was um, five pounds of butter, wow. 12 pounds of sugar. Mm. Um, I want to say 
three pounds of our fudge base, which was the, the base of every chocolate item that we made at the store. It was a, as a product custom made for my dad. We used to get the batches were 2,300 pounds. We either get 1,100 or 1,200 pounds delivered at a time wow. in big wow. 50 tubs. Um, wow. And we and it would have like uh, five, three or four pounds of the fudge base and a quart, uh, like two or three quarts of eggs. In commercial bakeries, either you weigh things or you do volume. You, you very, very rarely, like you would in the home recipe, two eggs right. for and so I would help him make brownies and one mix in, uh, in a, a 30 quart floor Hobart mixer, yep. we would do four full 18 by 26 sheet pans at once. Now I couldn't lift one of these things filled with brownies, oh, mind you. Yeah. Um, I learned how to scale ingredients and this was all using the old balanced scale, nothing electronic. So wow. you are in okay. front marked in eighth of an ounce with a little weight hanging on it. And then you had a big scoop on one side and you'd stack weights on the other side wow. and scale all your ingredients. Cool. And then they'd, they'd slide down into the mixer. And you learned little tricks like you divide your sugar into two batches and you put the fudge on top of the sugar so you didn't have to go wash the scoop because the fudge, you know, just stained everything. Um, wow. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. That then, is amazing that you used... I mean, that's like ancient Greece. <laughs> I'm imagining it, these it was, scales of justice. It was no more sophisticated than, than people had done for thousands of years. It really wasn't. That and it's amazing. We sold the cookies uh, on, the, on a much smaller version of the same thing. It was mm. an old-fashioned balanced scale. So it wasn't like you could sell eight cookies and figure out the weight and the price. No, you got a quarter pound or a half pound. There was nothing in between because... Mm could figure out what six and a half ounces of cookies cost. We weren't mm. going down there. Yeah. Mm, what an amazing, nostalgic set of memories. So I have a couple of follow-up questions just from what you've said so far. So I'm really curious what happened between noon and four, between the morning shift and the night shift. Well, the, we called the working end of the bakery the kitchen. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the kitchen would just sit there empty for, for those four hours. So the, mm -hmm. you would sell product, but nobody would be cooking for those four hours or baking. Well, we never cooked. We only baked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry I, about I, that. <laughs> I, no, I, I, I kind of jumped into that because they are really, really different uh, processes. Whatever it is that you're cooking, whether it's chicken, steak, fish, stew, basically the end of the process your, your principal component is still very recognizable for what it started as. Ah, that is such an important distinction. And also along the way, you can, you can adjust, you can tweak, you mm -hmm. can throw a little more salt at it, a little more rosemary, let it boil a little longer. When you bake, you have a recipe, you put it together, you stick it in the oven and win, lose or draw, you're done. Yes, your products undergo a chemical process that make them totally unlike what they were before. Okay, so another follow-up question. You said that your dad had one of the most famous, but also one of the most unusual bakeries in New York. And I would love to know what made his so unusual. Looking back on this, and I could never have told you this then because I'm completely unaware 
but he was really a pioneer mm-hmm. in his recipes. The brownie that I that you tasted, which your 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 five year old said, this is chocolate, not a brownie. Yeah, <laughs> an evolution of his, because mm-hmm. when he created his brownie, it was to uh, to the local taste at the time as rich as mine is today to other brownies. Mm-hmm. And what, what we've glossed over mm-hmm. is how much richer, fudgier, and chocolatier brownies are now generically than they were then. Mm-hmm. And then they look at a, a 1950s cookbook for a brownie. Mm-hmm. It'll have like two squares of chocolate for a pan of brownies. Today it has two squares of chocolate per brownie. Yeah, yeah. I'm up around four. You know, that's, and I'm just found a way to make it hold together. That's um, so interesting. Okay. But he, he really, a lot of his product was revolutionary. Okay. Um, and where it came from, I have no clue. He says yeah. the seven house cookbook <laughs> and, and in his mother's kitchen recipes right, from Anne Gertrude. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So how, tell me a little bit more about that. How did he learn? When did he start? And was this just something he thought, well, I've got to have a profession, so I'll do this? Or did it grow out of some love that he had very young? He started baking in his mother's kitchen um, as an early teenager. And the relationship he had with his Aunt Gertrude, I don't know. I never met her. Mm-hmm. But it was enough to get him to start baking. And he must have enjoyed enjoyed it because he wound up as a teenager being allowed to sell his baked goods through the local ladies club. Wow. Okay, so here's a teenage boy. Yeah. Sell in a ladies club because they like the cake that much. Yeah, and listen, competition was stiff back then. Everybody cooked and everybody cooked well, and they took a lot of pride in it. Yeah, so he he started there. Then the Mm -hmm. war came along, and he he served. He was uh, relief troops for the Battle of the Bulge, and then... What you know went across, wound up in Germany, um, and was there through the end of the war. Uh, and the army, in its infinite wisdom, made him a cook. Well, he good on them up. for that. Yeah, it, it worked out well because um, the army did two things for him. One, they put him in charge of the kitchens at Fort Dix when he came back from the European theater until he was discharged in '46, mm-hmm. and he fed six thousand meals a day. He said mm-hmm. in the morning he had 20 cooks lined up for three hours doing nothing but eggs to order. So that's where he learned real volume production. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure the word is accurate. And, yeah, no and the, the other thing that the Army did for him was send him home from Europe on a troop train across Europe until you get to the one of the Atlantic ports and then home on a converted passenger liner, you know, for the duration they were troop ships. And playing poker and blackjack on the train and the ship, he won three thousand dollars and used mm. that to start the business, build the store. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the army incredible story. Yeah. So, so how he, much how much was three thousand dollars back in the in the forties, late forties when the war was over? In forty six it was it was a lot of money. And yeah. this is, to, to rent the shop and buy some preliminary equipment. Oh, and well, I, it's, I mean, I've talked to him more about his early years now than I ever have before, more because mm-hmm. he's willing to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a little distracted running the store. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, he opened the store with um, a simple card table type of thing with a tablecloth over it to sell on. And he said he had four little home ovens lined up mm. to bake in. And it was like three years before he got a real commercial oven. You can't do that now. It's much harder now. But <laughs> yes, yes. There is a there is a family story I want to make sure that Seth tells because I I never get tired of hearing it about you you and your brother and your first job in the bakery. Oh oh, Lord, did we have a good time? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so here you have these Jewish grandmothers out front or grandmothers or whatever. I mean, just just wonderful people. And they loved you and Adam. They oh, really they did. did. Thrilled when you came. We, it was Big Helen and Little Helen and Sylvia. <laughs> I mean, Helen was this skinny little, maybe 105 pound tiger. She was Helen or big Helen. And we acquired another Helen who became little Helen, just to, just to, you know, tell her, because we certainly weren't going to have old Helen and new Helen. That wasn't. <laughs> so just to clarify, big Helen was 105 pounds. Yes, right. Oh, okay. And little Helen was, was maybe 130. And then there was Sylvia who was really your very well-endowed woman, okay? <laughs> and, and just to give you an idea of the atmosphere in the store, so all of a sudden, Sylvia, behind one of the counters, grabs, like, above her right breast and says, yeah. oh, oh, and grabs. And Big Helen says, what's the matter? And Sylvia says, my bra strap broke. And little Helen chimes in, don't let it fall on my corns. <laughs> And nothing happened in that store for 10 minutes because we couldn't breathe. And a customer came in and she's looking around, having no idea why people are, are purple from asphyxia because, because we couldn't take a deep breath. And my dad, my dad stopped work. He sat down on the, on the radiator. I mean, it gives me a sense of what it must have been like for him to grow up in that environment and that it wasn't just watching his dad bake because that in itself would be fun and well, fascinating he actually but, but uh, decorate, decorate the decorate, cakes yeah. but the family atmosphere of all the employees and how 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 much love there was that he he grew up surrounded by adults who oh who, who love the boss of kids we had so little turnover in staff mm -hmm. one of our senior night bakers andy martin but Andy worked for my dad for one month longer than I was alive. Started to work a month before I was born and in my wow. third still with the company. Because he was the night baker predominantly at the 68th Street store, which was the Gold Coast of Madison Avenue. Mm -hmm. And he, he looked at me one day and he said, you know, I was thinking about this. I think I just made the, my two million schnecken for your dad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> really a hell of a number in a handcraft store, let me tell you. Yes. He individually so, made and shaped every yes. single one yes. of those. And to be told, mm. having worked with Andy, I still make them process-wise exactly the way he did. Mm. And I mean, I've tweaked the recipe, but the process, the technique, is exactly what Andy and Dimitri and, uh, and others taught me. Mm. Again, I mean, these were such solid, wonderful people. They were with my dad for decades. Do you feel like they taught you things outside of baking? Did they th take you, teach you things about life that you still value? Well, yeah, absolutely. They were there to work. They enjoyed themselves, but they were there to be superb craftsmen. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Their pride in their work is what carried that business. Wow. Mm. And, mm. and they were following in, in my dad's footsteps because he set the tone, the culture of the store. And when they saw the kind of work that he was personally doing, you couldn't help but try to make everything you did as well as he was doing that. And, and that's, that's the atmosphere and the environment I grew up in. Mm. My mistake was believing I could do it too. So I just did it with never thought that I couldn't. Right. Well, it was you, just you the it. expectation to be excellent. Right. Yeah. And periodically, you, you know, when I was working with my dad, there were some designs I, on cakes I love to do and some which, which is just tedious as all get out. And <laughs> always turned out better because it was a matter of personal pride to me to make sure that something I didn't like to do was the best I could do. Mm -hmm. So we were seven and nine, eight and 10, you know, somewhere about that age. And to support the sales ladies um, behind, so there would be a showcase and then behind the salespeople was a service counter with underneath were these wooden cubbies. Inside were the cake boxes. Mm -hmm. They were nested. Okay. And that's what my brother and I would do in the back of the store when there weren't any bakers. We'd sit at the end of these long wooden benches and we would fold boxes. Yeah. And we were paid a penny for every five boxes we, we sold. Wow. $3,000 will go a long way at those wages. <laughs> well, remember, he opened in 46. This yeah. In the mid 60s. Wow. Uh, 20 years later. So yeah. my, my brother and I kind of figured out, even at the ripe old ages of eight and 10, that a penny for five boxes wasn't going to get us too far. Yeah. Yeah. And that a bundle of boxes was 250 boxes, and we could do on a really good day, like a Saturday afternoon, we do four bundles each. Yeah. There was about a thousand boxes. And what do we, what do we make? You know, $2.50. Cents. Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, even if we wanted to go bowling, that didn't get us too far. Even that. <laughs> yeah. so we, we went on strike for higher wages until we got two cents for every five boxes. A hundred percent pay increase. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we weren't smart enough to figure out a penny for three boxes. You know, we kind of, my dad had framed the argument that I pay in five box lots. So it was either one penny or two, you know. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. That's great. Oh, man. Wow. Oh, and we'd sit there for, you know, easily, you know, two or three hours and, yeah. and um, full boxes, you know, yeah. and, and we jump off our little stools and sneak out front and, you know, snag a cookie from now and then. And, 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 you know, it was just, it was just to be part of the atmosphere. Well, see, that's the thing is that, yeah, it's not fun work, but when you're surrounded by this kind of vibrant, fun family, it really takes the sting out of it. Oh, it does. And, and yeah. listen, at that age, it, it, it was work we could do. Mm-hmm. Helpful. Even we knew that it actually made a difference. Yes. People that have these. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it let, it let us be part of the team mm-hmm. and, you know, save my parents a fortune in babysitting. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. The, the net profit they had. Yeah. So yeah. then what was the, what was the process? Did you just slowly but surely take on more responsibility? I think the best dis- way to describe it is I wormed my way in. 
Um, <laughs> because I, I was intrigued with this. And so your dad did never pushed you. No, my dad, my dad actually was against my working in the store. It was my mom who said, you know, William, let him. She was my, my strongest advocate to have a role in the store. Okay. Um, when your wife says, William, you know, <laughs> even, even he, one of the most stubborn people I've ever met in my life. And I say that as a stubborn person, <laughs> yeah. uh, but eventually he relented and I came in and he did, did concede that I could do what he did. And he hadn't come across anybody else who could. Wow. Uh, okay. In second grade, I decorated a cake for one of my teachers. It was, I believe our coconut whipped cream cake, <gasps> but I didn't listen to the staff and keep putting it back into the refrigerator when either I changed colors or anything like that. Okay. To do with whipped cream. Okay. I finished. It looked pretty, but it didn't taste very good. (laughs) Oh no. It had soured. Yep. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's that Southern streak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So at least after that, I, I learned to listen a little bit better, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so um, how you you brought your mom up? How did your mom fit into all of this? She typically for the time she was mostly a stay-at-home mom. Okay. Um, and as the business grew and the demands grew, she also got more and more involved in the company. Okay. She would come over, you know, after taking care of the house and um, her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, she come over, she'd pick up the, the deposit from yesterday and she'd head off to the bank to save us time and effort to do that. And she'd, you know, what kind of petty cash we need. And she would shop and then she'd come in and she would answer phones and take orders and she'd wait on trade. Um, and as we got busier and busier, she instituted a lot of our processes around the big holidays. Oh, Okay. Right. Now, I mean, Thanksgiving was the busiest day of our year, hands down. And Christmas as a season was the busiest. But the Wednesday before Thanksgiving was King of the Hill. And towards the end, we were doing an average day's business every hour we were open on Thanksgiving. Wow. I'm so curious about this. How do you cope with the demands of a holiday like Thanksgiving or Valentine's? You abandon sleep. You yeah. just work all the time. Yeah. 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 Just- and this is what it's like to date a baker. I mean, the hours are horrific. He's up at 4 a.m. every day because he's got to bake to fill a store full of product by the time they open at 11. And especially at the holidays, it's all hands on deck. You know, I don't I don't really work at the bakery. I'm there a couple of days a week. I work on his social media. But as far as getting ready for holidays, oh, I'm there with him first thing in the morning and we stay late and I'm just running the mixer and rolling things out and doing whatever I can to be helpful. I've learned to teach in a hurry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a freshness issue too, right? So it's not like you can start in September. <laughs> On Sunday afternoon, we would bake our mince pies. They had to get a little brandy added to them after they were baked, and you wanted to have that brandy percolate all the way through that filling. And then Monday night, we would do all the fruit pies. I say (laughs) Monday night, we'd start at noon, because we would be baking about 208 inch apple pies, maybe 110-inch and 50 12-inch pies. 
Mm-hmm. And a 12-inch apple pie the last year that I can remember cost $65. Ooh. And then we had to do apricot, blueberry, and cherry in those three sizes. Yeah. And wow. each one of those fruit pies had a lattice top finish in that you had the, the we would pre-bake all the crusts, you know, the, the bottom shells and have those stacked up ready to go. And then we would prepare all the filling and then you assemble the pies. But at the end of it, you, we took, it was actually a turnover dough and we'd roll it out on a, on a big bench flat, wash it with melted butter and cover it with our cinnamon crumbs and then mm. roll them into the dough and then cut that into like inch wide strips. Mm-hmm. And each pie would get like four strips one way, turn it to like a mm-hmm. 30 angle or 40 degree angle and five strips the other way. Mm-hmm. Now, about doing that on close to a thousand pies mm-hmm. in a night. Mm-hmm. So you're like one point, down, 999 to go. <laughs> at that point, the the day shift would come in. So we would take a Monday night or Monday afternoon as those pies started to cool, we would box them and you'd have a, you know, Amazing. and then Tuesday night was pumpkin pie night. And our pumpkin pie was made with a, it was basically a custard filling, you know, with uh, with pumpkin and eggs and sugar and eggs and cream and eggs. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Each pie we had to fill three times during the baking because the custard would bake down and we wanted a full pie. So wow, for years, one of our bakers, John Gadsden, who was an excellent oven man, despite a lot of other faults. And he had a wooden stick with a ladle tied to the end of it. And he and it was long enough to reach 26 inches into the oven to get that last pie in the pan. And he would pull it out, dip it into a bucket of pumpkin pie filling and extend into the oven and pour <laughs> to fill this. And we're doing 350 pumpkin pies in the one night. So this was the, the effort that the crew made to the product quality, to the recipes that I grew up in. So you said your mom was critical to implementing some of these processes. Yeah, she would come in and to my best recollection, the the last year that I did the production list up in the Third Avenue store, this would have been 91. Because in 92, I had bought the store from my dad and built a new 5,000 square foot central bakery on the west side. Wow. So, so going back to, let's say, 91, I think I counted some 680 separate advance orders. Wow. What my mom would do, but she would go through the list and take a separate slip for each customer that had cookies or brownies or both and list them because the cookies we could pack a couple of days in advance. So she would set up that list. And the salespeople, like on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, we would put together all these components and stack them up. So on Tuesday night, when we're putting together 600 orders, we could just pull those pre-made boxes of a half a pound of thumbprint and a half a pound of chocolate chip instead of stopping to scale those off, which was really time-consuming. Okay. So she had you guys start working more and more in advance. Getting Correct. as much as possible done. Okay. So at what point does, um, you talked about, you know, equipment capacity becoming a limiting factor. At what point does storage become a limiting factor? Well, when we were 
out of space. I said, Pop, I'm going to rent a truck and park it out front. Mm-hmm. Deal with the parking meter and the tickets, but we need the space and we're going to store raw materials out there because if anything happens, I'm going to lose that, not finished goods. And, and we would put 2,000 pounds of flour and sugar and, you know, 10 pails of chocolate fudge base out in the truck. This is really why when people come in and see him in the store, people in their 40s, they see him and they cry and they say, you made every one of my birthday cakes my whole childhood. Yeah, or, already 70, by the way. Yeah. So not like, uh, yeah. Really? Or that, uh, you know, when somebody's parent passed and people brought things from Greenberg's and it meant so much because it was from that shop. You can taste the quality in every bite. His, yeah. his dad's baking really uh, has uh, has fed New York for how many years was that shop open? He opened in 1946 and we sold the company in 1995, 49 years later, mm-hmm. and then left in 97. But you know, Seth, what I'm thinking about right now, you know, you talked about these bags that weighed hundreds of pounds. You go weeks where you essentially don't sleep. And I'm thinking about the physical toll that that would take on a body. And then you're surrounded by delicious, but frankly, unhealthy food all the time. And then your dad is in his 90s and healthy enough and sharp enough to be getting around. Just pure luck. Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, he has spent some time in hospitals for various and sundry things. And he's really the best patient you ever want to know because mm-hmm. he's all cheerful. He never, you know, yells at a nurse. Mm-hmm. He makes yeah. them smile and he gets great service. And it doesn't hurt that I bring cookies, you know. Yes. <laughs> and no, you, you still don't want to play poker with that man. He will take all your money. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he lives right now in an independent living in an assisted living facility. And he's he's taken 11 bucks out of these people in a three-hour game in nickel-dime poker. Yeah. <laughs> it was always poker. Poker is what oh, started. Poker to this day. Mm. To this day. When we were at 1181 Madison, his best friend, Peter Simon, owned a chocolate appetizer and confection store called Ellen's. Mm-hmm. on Madison between 85th and 86th. But my, my dad and his friend Peter, Peter Sr., they played poker together every Monday night for 62 years. And your dad's best friends, all the family best friends, were all in some way involved in food service, wine. I've learned so much. You know, dating Seth, it's very interesting because there's an environment that he grew up in that he was raised in where they really valued quality, not just in the baking, but in everything they ate, in everything, and having the right wine and having the right bread. You know, so many of these stories that he tells have to do with great meals. Our lives were built around food. I was really immersed in this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about, it sounds like you were owning the business with your dad. You sold it. You worked there two years longer. You kind of left the business altogether. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what that was like to go through? I left high school. I skipped my senior year of high school to go to college okay. and went to NYU. So I was still in the city, didn't go away. So I could work all the way through college and yeah. I did not finish college. My dad got ill and his doctor forbade him to be in the store for six weeks. Okay. 
So all of a sudden I was in the store completely full time, you know, even more than I'd been. And at that point, school just kind of faded out and nobody argued. I did eventually earn an academic degree. I don't want you to think I'm a complete Philistine. Uh, I did get an MBA from Columbia University, Columbia Business School, 20 years later. That's incredible. But I would never think that anyways. The proof is in what you and your dad built. My dad had one semester of college before he went off to war. Mm. So to answer your question, so there we are in 91. I'm working with him full time. We have at that point four stores, but rents had been steadily rising in the city, disproportionate to traffic. I was looking to expand the company and it was getting really expensive to run bakeries in each store. I see. So you had to get a centralized bakery and then take the product to the stores. Exactly. Got it. Year that that centralized bakery was open, I dropped my cost of goods, sold 26%. Wow. So I had transportation costs now, but that also allowed us to start to pursue wholesale business because we could deliver. Um, And I started to look for investment partners to grow the business. Okay. Eventually, we wound up selling to them. So we wound up selling the company in 95 instead of um, doing a joint venture going forward. Do you regret selling or would you do it over again? I mean, the single biggest mistake we ever made was not buying our own space because then we, we would never have been at the mercy or whim right. of landlords. So are the types of places that can afford the locations you used to be in, are those only big national stores? Are there no mom and pop stores there anymore? Walk down Madison Avenue between 82nd Street and 66th Street. And it's all international brands that want a flagship store on one of the premier shopping streets in the country. Mm. Yeah. And they just have enormous, enormous, enormous budgets that they can even take a loss on those stores if they need to. They do because the the traffic is not going to cover $50,000 a month in rent. There's no difference between walking up Third Avenue to those 20 blocks a mile and going through Mall of America yeah. You know. Yeah. So this this is a great transition. So tell me a little bit about where your store is now and what's similar, what's different about running a bakery now. We're about 20 minutes out of the city in Westchester. Okay. I was before I opened the store, I spent 19 months in farmers markets as a vendor. And there were three questions that I wanted to answer. First one of which was do people still appreciate quality? Mm-hmm. And that's how we met is I was running farmer's markets. and So the second question was, would they pay for it? And then the third question was, will people or do people like what I know how best to make? Yeah. I looked into going back into the city. We looked at a thousand square foot store with a basement on the corner of 77th Street and 3rd Avenue. They're asking 18000 a month. So if you want to keep your rent to 10% of your gross, okay. that we had to do $180,000 a month in revenue or $6,000 a day from day one. Yeah, you cannot get behind. No. And in order yeah. to, to afford the staff you need to sell $6,000 or offer $6,000 a cake in the beginning, you needed a million dollars in the bank in liquid capital 
And then you needed close to that to build the store. And we looked at each other and we said, and that's if there's no mistakes, no delays. Yeah. Okay. So you moved 20 minutes out of the city. And uh, on a shoestring, much like my father did, I built my store. Would you say there's anything at all that makes it, it almost sounds like everything is more difficult (laughs) these days. Would you say there's anything that's easier than what your dad had? Well, technology. My dad used to tell the temperature of an oven by putting his hand in it. Wow. You have a digital scale. (laughs) I I have have two digital scales, one for production, one for selling. And, you know, the other difference is in, in terms of knowing more about my ingredients. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the line is my the chickens leave before mm-hmm. they send eggs to me. And, you know, grass-fed cows. Right. And Karina, you must be an incredible resource in that running farmer's markets. You must be. Absolutely. I'm always introducing him to farms that have great quality eggs. It's really been such a pleasure to date someone when we have this in common. Our careers overlap so much. Mm. And We both have such an appreciation for the small proprietors who create the ingredients. Yeah. I do talk up to my my customers where my raw materials come from. They like the fact that as much as possible, I use Hudson Valley producers. Mm. I don't want anyone to come to the market because they feel they're obligated to support it. I Mm. want them to come because they're really finding the best food to feed their family. Right. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. For me in the store, I mean, I use Hudson Valley eggs, and I'm paying wholesale three sixty a dozen. Wow! But when you crack the egg and you see the color of that yolk, and mm. you you incorporate that into a, a recipe, and it makes such a difference, taste and texture wow. and color across the board. Wow! Mm. And, and again, I use an organic evaporated cane juice sugar, which is a, a, a very pale yellow compared to white refined open the bag and you and you just stick your nose in and take a deep breath you get that little underlying smell of molasses because that's what they're refining out of sugar let's just talk real quickly about the recipe because i have several questions about it i noticed that you said the evaporated cane juice is what you look for how is this different than just white granulated sugar that i would get in a bag well the molasses hasn't been refined out of it, it really is just the juice pressed out of the cane and evaporated down into crystals. You know, classic white sugar has had the, the tar beat out of it. The best thing I can say is that you can find a, a jar of Florida's crystals uh-huh. or Costco near you. Uh, how does this going to sound? The Kirkland Organic Evaporated Cane Juice Sugar. Really? Yeah. I go to Costco all the time. Yeah. Baking as much as cooking, maybe even more so. It's 100% dependent upon the ingredients you put in. You take a, a poor cut of meat and marinate it and tenderize it and yeah. throw mm-hmm. spices out of it. You can't fix lesser butter. Mm-hmm. And what kind of butter do you use, locally produced? Uh, it's a big cooperative called Cabot, C-A-B-O-T. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I've seen that. Actually, I think, I think Costco has that also. Maybe I see their cheese. They do, a, yes, the, the black wrapped cheddar cheese three-year aged oh what a wonderful cheddar love that hey that's a good tip i I would love to ask about another tip so i noticed you say that your flour is sifted Mm -hmm. 
So what is your process? Because I always feel like I sift and then when I measure, I like take all the air out. Okay. Let me back up. And okay. And I taught baking for about nine years to the Scarsdale Adult School. And, oh, wow. And this recipe, the one that you have, mm-hmm. uh, was the first recipe I always taught them because it, mm-hmm. it dressed some of the real important fundamentals mm-hmm. and it was something that everybody liked. So the first thing I would say to people is there are two things you need. Get yourself a scale and a stand mixer. Because when you have the ability to, to weigh your ingredients, your consistency goes way up. When somebody, a recipe says, well, give me a cup of packed brown sugar. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. If somebody says, give me eight ounces of brown sugar by weight, that you're rock solid. And what, what each individual baker will do when they have a scale is they'll find a conversion to a weight that they are comfortable with. So, so back to this question about sifting, you really, it's almost, and taking the air out, it's almost like an impossible question to answer if you're not weighing the product. Well, let's, let's say that you don't have a scale. So what you do in a case like that is you, let's say you take a cup measure Uh and you take, and you take a bowl and you take your cup measure, dip it into your flour, scoop it up, you know, so it's domed over the top, scrape off with with an edge, dump that in the bowl, but then to, to sift it, a lot of people will just sift by putting it through a sieve, mm-hmm. which if that's all you have, that's still better than nothing. Mm-hmm. But I prefer the sifters that look like a little can, like a number 10 can with a, with a handle to hold it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I still have tool. one of those. And, and then so you measure your two and a quarter or whatever it is, and then you sift what you measured. So you're actually by volume going to end up with more than two and a quarter because you're kind of adding that air in. This is why I so strongly advocate weighing. So tell me about, in terms of technique, please don't undercream. Talk to me about undercreaming, creaming, and is there such a thing as overcreaming, and how do we prevent that? You can overcream butter, but you really have to work on. Okay. <laughs> Those of us yeah. who bake in our kitchens need to be much more concerned about undercreaming. Exactly. And again, you want to use a stand mixer because otherwise you're going to be standing there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. holding a mixer, which doesn't do a very good job. A hand mixer with those two spinning, spinning blades is useless for creaming butter and sugar. It's a whole mm-hmm. wrong act. It's great for whipping cream, but for mixing a batter or a dough, it's a useless machine. I didn't know that. So you, you have your butter and your, and your sugar in the bottom. And depending upon how cold the butter is when you start and how cold your room is, but it's a good six to 12 minute process to get wow. the proper incorporation of sugar and butter. You take a little between your, your thumb and forefinger and rub it. And if you can feel any tiny little crystals in there, it's not ready. Wow. So the, the end of this recipe, the flip side of that, yeah. most people way over mix once the flour is in it. Yes. And what happens when you over mix the flour? The, the key ingredient in flour is a protein. That protein develops into gluten, and the gluten is what gives bread its elasticity. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, true in any batter or dough that has a reasonable protein content of flour in it. So when you mix that flour in at the end, if yes. you let the machine run too long, you're going to develop the gluten in a cookie that does not want it. Yes. And you're going to make that cookie tough and instead of softer and crumblier. And when you roll it out, you're going to need a fair amount of 
flour on the bench, particularly if your kitchen is warm or humid. But all the more reason, like you said, that you do not want to overbeat it because you're going to be adding more and you're going to be rolling some of these two and three times as the scraps keep getting incorporated oh, back in. That's yeah. They say divide the dough in advance. So at least that first batch of scraps, I'll mm-hmm. even do it sometimes in thirds. When you're down to the end, instead of kneading it on the table to incorporate all the scraps, uh-huh. just do it in your hands, like forming a ball and don't add any more flour until you're ready to roll it out on the bench. Yeah, what great tips. I'm so glad you said that. Thank you. Thank you so much. So when you when you scale from a batch, you know, that you would make in a home kitchen to a you know, a batch that's going to produce dozens and dozens of cookies, does everything always scale or is there something that if you just do the multiplication, this flavor ends up um, overpowering or something? You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Usually they don't scale up exactly right, and it's more texture than it is anything else. Interesting. Uh, On this particular recipe, you're talking about a half pound of butter, and on my small machine at the store, I'll use two pounds. I wind up adding more flour to this at the end for texture. Okay, well, we're winding down here, but this is going to release two days before Valentine's Day. So I'm really curious what Valentine's products you'll be carrying at the store. For Valentine's Day, we're going to be doing these hearts. Uh, And I also take this dough rolled out a little thicker and cut into smaller hearts, which I dip in a 70% chocolate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The hand dip half chocolate hearts sell very, very well. And I, I do my little okay. dark chocolate cake, chocolate cake, chocolate fudge between chocolate fudge outside. We're going to do a demo cake decorated as a proposal. So oh. if you special someone that you want to pop the question to, you can put that right on the cake. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. So let's tell every where can they find you? They can find me online at SethGreenbergsJustDesserts.com. Okay. They can find me on my Facebook page, which is Seth Greenberg's Just Desserts, or they can find me in the store, Seth Greenberg's Just Desserts. (laughs) Oh, Instagram. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, And the store is 1887, 1887 Palmer Avenue in the thriving town of Larchmont, New York, 10538. Well, this has been, first of all, the stories about your dad were so touching. And I love that it was your mom who kind of swooped in and created these processes that really carried the bakery along during holidays for so many years. And I loved hearing about what you do now. This was a real pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Have a great day, you guys. You too. And enjoy the cookie. (laughs) I I sure will. I'm going to have to share. (laughs) Well, into every life, a little rain must fall. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Have a great day, guys. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Seth and Karina. You can find this cookie recipe and all of Seth's information in the show notes over at thestoriedrecipe.com. Next week, I'm speaking with a Finnish chef about the Nordic tradition of making Simla for Fat Tuesday. We'll also be discussing his own journey to owning a restaurant here in DC. Please make sure you subscribe to The Storied Recipe in your podcast player. And if you would take a moment right now to text or email a friend that would like this podcast, that would absolutely mean the world to me. Follow along on Instagram at the storied recipe podcast to get the most up-to-date 
and all the fun behind the scenes information about this show. Happy Valentine's Day and have a great week, my friends.